You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jeremy Lucero, and this is the Sunday, December 19th, 2021 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's program, as the year comes to a close, we continue our coverage of the 2021 labor upsurge and our look at several recent historic contract wins by several unions. On the last episode of Labor Express Radio, I had a terrific conversation with Jonah Furman of Labor Notes that both celebrated these recent victories at John Deere, Kaiser Permanente, and IATSE, but also took a critical approach to the new contracts, discussing both what was gained and what was left undone. Tonight we hear from rank-and-file members of both UAW at John Deere and several Chicago-area IATSE members. They spoke at a recent Chicago Jobs with Justice Workers' Rights Board hearing about fighting for health and safety in the workplace. Besides some excellent discussion of the topic of the evening, I think we also heard at least allusions to the rank-and-file responses to the new contracts. Chicago JWJ also used the event to announce a couple new organizing efforts in Chicago that are looking for volunteers. It was a wide-ranging, insightful, and lively discussion with many participants, so we're going to devote most of tonight's program to audio from that event. But first, we have this week's Labor News update from our friends at Radio Labor in Canada. This edition of Solidarity News focuses on how wage theft impacts migrant workers globally and how global union federations are addressing the situation. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Thursday, December 16th, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. There are about 115 million migrant workers in the world. Their wages and working conditions have always been poor, but the pandemic has made things even worse. One of the major problems they face is wage theft. To publicize the plight of the workers, the Solidarity Center produced a podcast using Sri Lanka as an example. The center is the largest international labor rights organization in the United States. Its podcast is hosted by the center's executive director, Shauna Baderblau. Imagine working and not getting paid. I mean, many of us do have fun sometimes when we're at work, but we don't work for fun. We work to support ourselves and our families. But unbelievably, in the 21st century, for millions of people worldwide, especially those in low-wage work, and especially for people who migrate from their homes for jobs, it's shocking how often they work and don't get paid, paid on time, or even at all. Our guest today will describe a campaign across Asia that is raising awareness about the untold numbers of people who migrate for work, but who are not paid and are forced to work long hours with no days off, all forms of wage theft. Michael Joy Kim speaks to us from Sri Lanka, where he is co-founder and director of the Plantation Rural Education and Development Organization, PREDO. Credo is part of the Justice for Wage Theft campaign formed by migrant rights organizations during the COVID crisis. Michael, in your experience working um, in Sri Lanka and across the region on the issue of migrant workers, I wonder if you could just share a little bit, like, what are some of the reasons people migrate? All the others go because there is less income for them. Many other migrant workers are either semi-skilled or unskilled workers. So they can't earn very much to build a house, to educate their children. 
and many of them also go to repay their loans locally so that they come out of that bondage of getting indebted what constitutes wage theft wage theft is basically when the employer does not pay the wages agreed normally a contract would include that amount and otherwise there would, would not be an official agreement but what happens is when you go to a, the country if the labor laws are not implemented properly one is not paying the minimum wages so someone is leaving a country either because they need to pay off debt and they can't make enough locally or they're trying to improve their lives and livelihoods they land in a country and work and either don't get paid the wages they're promised or owed or in some cases don't get paid at all i know that your organization predo is working with the justice for wage theft campaign and that campaign began during the early months of covid pandemic wage theft became a sort of a common phenomenon where they complained of various grievances before covid-19 and out of the 1700 cases about 60 to 75% of them actually were wage theft they were wow. complaining that they were not paid they were uh, cheated they were promised they were paid later they were not paid overtime but then suddenly after covid-19 large number of people started complaining that they were not paid they lost the employment and it became a huge problem to hear the full interview about migrant worker wage theft visit solidaritycenter.org And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Bolanje. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Big thank you to Mark Belange and Solidarity News, produced by Radio Labor in Canada, for allowing us to broadcast their segments regularly here on Labor Express. For more on Radio Labor, see their website at radiolabor.net. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. Back on November 30th, Chicago Jobs with Justice held one of their Workers' Rights Board hearings. The topic this time: fighting for health and safety in the workplace. A certainly timely and important topic. a topic that alone would have been enough to make the hearing worth sharing here on our program. What made the hearing even more interesting and relevant was it included rank and file union members of two unions who recently concluded historic contract agreements with their employers. One following a strike and the other just narrowly avoiding a strike. Several Chicago area IATSE members, that's the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees, were among those who testified at the meeting. We usually think of IATSE and the film and TV industry being centered in Southern California, but Chicago has been an important center for the industry for at least a decade now, with an important studio on Chicago's South Side near Pilsen and the production of several TV shows and numerous movies in recent years. The hearing also featured Nolan Tab, a rank and file UAW member who works at John Deere. 
Both groups of workers discussed the issue of health and safety or lack thereof on the job, but also included discussion of this topic in light of their new contracts, including some criticism over the limitations of what was achieved in these new agreements, as well as mistakes made in the organizing of the contract fights. First, we'll hear from Joe Legault and then Betsy Peoples, both local Chicago members of IATSE. As we have discussed on previous episodes, a key focus of the contract fight for IATSE members was the unbelievably long and dangerous hours workers in the entertainment industry are expected to work. As we also discussed previously, the new contract makes improvements in this area, but it falls far short of mandating a safe and healthy work schedule, as you will hear. The first to speak was Joe, followed by Betsy. Actually, let me just start with what's common to all of us. I mean, and what was a common uh, issue for uh, the recent contract negotiations and the sharply divided uh, result of the votes on those contracts. Um, what is common to all of us is uh, very long hours and uh, short turnarounds. Um, I, these two contracts uh, secured uh, a 10 hour turnaround um, and you know our international was touting it as a win, but uh, basically what the contract allows for still is something like a 72 or 74 hour work week, um, which a lot of us can, you know, attest is pretty common. I think the last, you know, the last show I worked at, it was, you know, at least 65 hours a week. Um, and that's, you know, working in could be extreme heat, extreme cold, wet weather, um, uh, grips certainly work uh, at height. I mean, we, we work on aerial lift platforms or, you know, uh, rigging on stages. Uh, there's a lot of um, hazard for, you know, falling. Um, I, I think our sound stages tend to be pretty cluttered. There's a lot of trip hazards. There's uh, fire hazards. Um, and I think one of the big issues is that uh, there's sort of a conflict of interest in terms of who is responsible for safety on set. Um, the first assistant director, I believe, is technically responsible and has the final say uh, for whether, you know, a, a, a shot or a situation is safe or not. But they're also the people that are responsible for keeping the production on track. Um, like the, uh, the shooting that happened in New Mexico on that production rust, uh, that uh, AD apparently had a very bad reputation and, you know, it was a low budget show. So working on you know even longer hours and and you know a tighter time frame a tighter schedule um, and clearly some you know lapse in, in safety and, and checking the gun that was being used in that shot um, occurred and it was the AD that handed that loaded weapon to uh, Alec Baldwin that's an extreme example but I think that sort of lack of transparency is mirrored throughout the industry I mean you might even if you, know, if you have a shop steward. It might be a department head that you might not feel comfortable um, reporting an issue, an issue to if it's you know a case of harassment or something like that. Um, uh, even our own international has uh, uh, pointed us to the studio's health and safety hotlines. Like if we see something that's wrong, so it's sort of like you know the calls coming from inside of the house kind of thing. Um, I, I don't feel that our international is proactive enough at. Uh, policing the people that we work for. They view it too much of a, as a partnership and not as the inherently antagonistic relationship that it is. Um, I don't know, I, 
I could go on, but I don't want to. Uh, Betsy, if you have anything to add from your perspective in the camera department. Yeah, you know, I think that one of the really major things um, that's been mentioned is like the glamorization of the industry that we work in in general um, that has happened. And basically everyone thinks that everything is so exciting and new and cool and techie. And then there are the celebrities and all of that kind of stuff. And really that's, it's not glamorous. We work really long hours. We lift heavy equipment. Um, we oftentimes are not given breaks to eat for just for lunch. Um, and because we work under our contract, we don't have any required time for a break during the day. Um, so basically, there, are, there were before the contract that we just um, negotiated by authorizing a strike. Um, now there are much more steep penalties for not giving us a break for lunch. Um, so the studios are more inclined to do so. Um, there's a lot of conflict of interest, like Joe was saying, in a lot of ways uh, of what happens in our industry. Um, just because no one's on the same playing field within IATSE. Um, each local has their, we've all like gotten so separate from each other and each local seems to have their own agenda and the own things that they want because we have not made an even playing field. Um, local 600, is fortunate enough to be a part of the Hollywood Basic um, bargaining unit, which gives us uh, a lot more say and our members a lot more say in a lot of the things that happen with the contracts. Um, and like Joe said, there was a huge divide on whether or not to ratify this contract um, because our working conditions are such a bummer, really. Um, I think another huge issue with the fact that it's been glamorized so much is that people aspire to do this work. And many of us do truly love the work that we do. But in order to be able to do that work, we just have been kind of mindwashed by the employers to believe that you have to go the extra mile. You have to do these other things um, in order to reach whatever job that you're aspiring to do. And therefore you make a lot of sacrifices. You end up working these ridiculous long hours for nine to 10 months out of the year. You don't see your family, your weeks start to shift um, from starting at 5.30 a.m. on Monday to starting the day at 5 p.m. on Friday and not finishing work until maybe 8 a.m. on Saturday morning and then having to be back at work again first thing Monday. Um, that was another thing that was addressed with this contract. Many people don't feel that it was enough, but like I was saying before, until we all kind of get on the same playing field, with what our needs are and 
what are what needs have been met, it makes it a little difficult. And I think that that's one thing that I would like to see IATSE putting a lot more effort in is growing solidarity amongst the locals um, so that we can all be on the same page and also creating solidarity with unions outside of our industry. I think that there's a lot of that needs to happen so that everyone, I mean, the whole point of the union and everything is that we as a collective group have the power over the people that generally have the power and held the power because they were privileged white men generally. And now with unions, we are able to take back a lot of that power. Um, but it still doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of problems that need to be addressed. Um, we still work in some pretty crazy situations where safety isn't at the top of the priority list for the employers, which is usually the biggest issue is that for the employers, we are nothing more than a light or a lens or this piece of equipment or that thing. We are just a tool to them and they don't care. So a lot of the responsibility for safety and health um, needs on set fall to the union members to look out for each other. Um, and that's also where I think gaining solidarity amongst the crafts, like I believe that here in Chicago, that 476 and 600 and the few other locals that are involved do have a really good relationship um, in comparison to the nation at large um, with the industry. And I think that because of that, we're still behind on a lot of very basic workplace um, requirements, such as needing to use the bathroom, having a bathroom break. Um, I work as a camera assistant, which most people do not have any idea what that is, but generally I don't have time even between takes to step off of set unless there is a large setup going on, which means that oftentimes I can go from the time that I step on set in the morning at 5.30 until they decide to call lunch, if they do, without being able to go to the restroom. And in the cases that maybe I had to, because I am a human female, step off of set to use the restroom, I regularly would be basically either called on the radio, called on my cell phone, or have another person come find me in the bathroom to tell me, we need to go, they wanna roll, you need to come back to set so that they can roll the camera. And I'm like, I'm human, I need two minutes, I'm coming right back. But that's the kind of thing where it's like, a lot of times we don't even have these very basic human needs met by our employers. Um, Joe, I don't know if you have anything to add into that. Yeah, I, I mean, as a grip, I'm comparatively fortunate just because we have, you know, pretty large crews in our department and we're not as obliged to be on set as much. But again, if you're a dolly grip, you can't really leave. If you're the key grip, you can't really leave. Um, and I, I just to, um, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, that 
I think that there's there is sort of like a an institutionalized um, I don't know I guess uh, what what people uh, the the pressure that's on us from production coming from the top, um, but it, it becomes reflected in the people the, the people that we work for who are our you know fellow union members um, because it is it's essentially a, a gigified. Uh, it's gigified piecemeal work, you know, it's, it, we don't really have formal job security. Um, and so it can be a, sort of a cultural problem where, uh, I mean, it, it's up to us to look out for each other, but, you know, you, you know, some of the older employers in particular, the, the older, the older union members in particular can sort of uh, uh, internalize that unhealthy work ethic, work ethic because they're worried about getting the next job, just like everybody else is working worried about getting the next job there um we have no um we we allow ourselves to be beholden to our employers i think joe's statement that his union still unfortunately looks at their relationship to the employer as a partnership rather than recognizing the inherently antagonistic relationship that it is is an excellent summation of the limitations of far too many unions today and explains why despite the recent contract fight victories at so many workplaces So much more could, but is not being accomplished in these fights. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. On our last episode of Labor Express, Jonah Furman of Labor Notes did an excellent job of breaking down the gains in the new UAW contract at John Deere, as well as the shortcomings. If you missed that episode, I really encourage you to check that out on the podcast. Nolan Tabb is a rank-and-file member of UAW at John Deere. In his response to the question of health and safety on the job, Nolan raised an often under-addressed topic. My name is Nolan Tabb, and I am a, a UAW member with John Deere, a local 281 in Davenport. Um, and, uh, you know, I actually want to just kind of um, segue with what um, Betsy and, and Joe had a very good point um, about the need for communication amongst locals. Um, beings that we were on this strike with John Deere for five weeks, um, there's 12 different locals that are under our same master agreement. And uh, it, it ranges from 10 miles apart to a hundred mile radius. Um, but unfortunately there was a gap that was exposed during this negotiations that was very hard to dismiss. And that was that, that gap in communication um, and knowing what the needs were from one local to another. Uh, that's, that's a very, key piece to be able to um, kind of foster that true solidarity. And uh, not only that, but from cross unions communication from one, one side of the spectrum to the other, as far as industry is concerned, uh, we, we are only 10% of, of the labor, you know, organized labor is only 10% of the labor force. But if we can even um, start to bridge those gaps of communication for those 10%, uh, I think that, you know, we probably would all agree that, that the strength that would carry with it would carry over to the other 90% um, and letting industries know that, you know, we do have demands and that we are human and that, um, you know, this is a, should be a um, kind of a symbiotic relationship, right? You know, we're doing for them what they need so that, you know, in return, they're doing for us what we need kind of a thing. But without being able to stand united, um, even on a local level, but even across other unions, you know, unfortunately, that ends in, in concessions, you know, here and there from this industry, to that industry. So I just wanted to, to touch on that. Um, I think that's a very, very important key piece um, that I have experienced. Um, but then the other thing that I wanted to touch on is one of the one of the subjects that kind of gets overlooked um, or not brought into the 
conversation with health and workplace safety um, is mental health and emotional health. That That's a huge piece of, you know, occupational safety, uh, truly, because I'm sure IATSE members can attest to the amounts of stress and uncertainty, um, you know, with, with it being uh, maybe a lack of um, job security from time to time. Uh, with my experience in particular being on strike, uh, we were out for five weeks, and in those five weeks, we had uh, three members that, that took their own life, um, sadly enough. Um, and it's, you know, I think it needs to be brought into the spotlight. That is a key piece of workplace uh, health and safety that, that needs to get uh, more attention to it. You know, I, I think there's very important pieces of, um, you know, ergonomics and workplace environment, um, elements that you may or may not work in, things like that, that are also important. Um, but, you know, taking, taking the understanding that um, it, it really kind of comes back to communicating, you know, um, whether it be from, from member to member, um, you know, the people you work around directly um, and, and seeing a shift. I know maybe this is different for certain industries, um, seeing different faces depending on the job site. Um, but for my experience, you know, you often see your coworkers more than you see your family. Uh, I know that manufacturing um, industry is kind of feast or famine, and that's when things are rolling. Uh, you know, you're we're, we are putting in long hours for long stretches of time, and you do see your your coworkers more than you see your family, and you do grow those bonds and relationships um, to where you know it just kind of takes. Uh, noticing noticing those small changes in the people around you and the in the work environment um, whether it becomes toxic or hostile uh, things like that um, because you know mental health is very real and uh, you know the the stresses of life that come with you know economic uncertainty financial uncertainties and things like that are directly correlated to um, that that atmosphere and uh I think it's it's not about exposing someone, right? It's not about um, putting their business out there or or notifying somebody in leadership that you are, are concerned, um, because often oftentimes it's it's not brought to the attention, even if it's felt, even if it's you know people look back and say, oh, you know, there was this, there was that, there was these flags, there was a shift in the behavior, things like that. And maybe they felt they, it wasn't their place or or um, they didn't want to meddle or things like that, which is understandable. But I think it's more important that um, that those conversations are had for the health and well-being of ourselves and, the, and, and those that we work with. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. We need to take a short station ID break, but when we return, we'll have much more from the Chicago Jobs with Justice Workers' Rights Board hearing on fighting for health and safety in the workplace. So make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. In the first half of tonight's episode, you heard from Joe Legault and Betsy Peoples from IATSE and Nolan Tabb, a UAW member at John Deere. As the hearing moved from presentations or testimonies to input from the board and others in attendance, several questions led to interesting discussions. An example was Peter Kuttner, another IATSE member who raised the pandemic and how it has played a role in radicalizing workers, encouraging them to expect more from their work life and accept less abuse on the job. 
This led to some interesting discussion about the pandemic and increased worker militancy between Peter, Nolan, Betsy, and Joe. Peter Kuttner, I'm also a member of uh, Joe and Betsy's union in the, in the motion picture and digital industry. Um, and we've had a lot of time here at the mic, so I don't want to really talk about the specifics of our industry, but what we have learned uh, uh, in the pandemic, uh, I think affected us in our contract negotiations. Uh, never before in the history of uh, modern history of our union had we uh, gone on a national uh, strike. Um, the only uh, uh, the only industry wide strike happened right after World War II, uh, and actually it was our union uh, uh, crossing the picket lines of another more progressive union. Uh, but I think what happened uh, was that the time that we ended up spending at home during the, the layoffs and the pandemic, uh, as hard as it was financially on the families, it was uh, such a, uh, a mental lift, a spiritual lift, um, uh, both men men and women got to connect with their families in different ways. We have many, uh, many uh, uh, couples with children who work in the industry and uh, their kids end up in daycare all the time. And I think uh, we came out of it with this uh, new understanding of what, what our lives should be like. And uh, it was that, uh, that deal of uh, we can't take it anymore. We don't want to take it anymore. And uh, our international was quite surprised. Uh, in fact, uh, the contract uh, uh, was, uh, the balance for the contract were counted uh, the same way that the uh, United States Electoral, Electoral College is, uh, is counted. And uh, a, uh, a majority of workers were against the contract. They wanted more time off. When Betsy talks about long hours, she didn't put numbers on them. Uh, but a, a normal day in the industry is 14 hours. Uh, we get overtime after eight. Um, we're well paid. Not everyone. It. Not everyone. In, uh, uh, in, well, many of us do. Uh, our wages can, are, some of them uh, are high, but uh, it's like the... Uh, uh, the, the building trades, uh, we just fought to get uh, one category uh, on the Hollywood contract up over minimum wage to about $16. Uh, but in any event, um, we spoke out for the first time. And I think a lot of it came from uh, that idea that our lives are different now. And we, uh, we find uh, families a lot more important and uh, our own time a lot more important. You're absolutely right. But there's also a flip side of that coin. Um, and in my experience, we were deemed essential workers um, during the pandemic and were made to work business as usual um, at the risk of our health, the health of our family members um, and, and some paid with their lives um, during that process, unfortunately. And uh, 
you know, so whenever it came around for contract negotiations, you know, we were deemed essential workers, not because we were out saving lives, but because it's a consumer based economy and big corporation was making money. Um, and, and it really reflected on what the pecking order was of uh, what's what's truly important. And now, I don't I don't want to stand here and knock John Deere or UAW um, for their lack of safety. They, I, I would say they do a very good job um, on a day to day basis. But when things like this happen, uh, extenuating circumstances like a pandemic, and you see dollars being put in front of lives, it, it also changes perspectives. Yeah, and I, I'd actually love to add to that as well, um, because you, as you were saying, you were deemed an essential worker. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we weren't deemed essential workers, but after about four months in, film and television workers were deemed essential workers because we were making content. Um, and I was grateful that people were able to go back to work, but just like you were saying, it was such a double-edged sword of like, we were not saving lives. And that's another aspect of our industry that can be really troubling is that we were just making silly movies and TV shows and no one should live a horrible working experience just to make entertainment for other people um, and ourselves, of course. Um, and that was when for us, I think just to add to what Peter was saying about a lot of people for the first time ever working in this industry were not only given an opportunity to have time off, but they couldn't think about where's the next job, when's the next job that I'm getting, what's the thing. So they actually got the time to be with their families without that time being overshadowed by trying to figure out what your next step was, which is usually how our off time is spent, which is uncomfortable and doesn't allow you that kind of like real quality time with your family. And I think that seeing that the employers were willing to spend an ungodly amount of money to put in protocols, safety protocols for COVID for us to come back to work really showed us like there was no way for them to deny that suddenly 30% of their budget was going to be dedicated to something that never existed and they made it work. But all of these things that we had been asking for in the past, very simple things that would cost way less of their budget, they had always told us it's too expensive. We can't make money that way, blah, blah, blah. And I think that that also really proved to people like we don't have to work in the worst, obviously not the worst, but in um, just not quality working environments. Um, and also to go along with that, it's very telling in our industry that the reason that we were not going right back to work right away was because of the actors. It was not because of anyone else on set. The actors are the ones that set the health and safety standards basically for everyone as they would be the most people at risk because they would be on camera and therefore couldn't wear masks that whole time. However, the studios were willing to wait for them 
but the people who are there lifting and moving equipment every day and actually making it happen, they really don't care about us. Um, so that can be a very disheartening experience. I want to point out that what Peter Kuttner said in that segment about the odd way in which IATSE contract votes are organized, similar to an electoral college, this is still a system I'm hoping to talk with IATSE members in the future about both to better understand it and to examine how it seems to undermine union democracy. So stay tuned to future episodes for that. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. Another very interesting question came from Janelle White a workers' rights board member and director of TUOP, the Temp Worker Union Alliance Project. On much of our coverage of the 2021 wave of strikes and contract fights these past several months, we've discussed how two-tier contracts break down worker solidarity when new workers are being paid less for the same job as their fellow union members in the higher tier. Danelle raises an important point we have not discussed previously in the context of these recent contract fights. Another way that employers divide workers, pay some substantially less, and undermine worker solidarity is the hiring of temp workers. Janelle's question began an interesting reflection on this challenge from all of the participants that we've heard from tonight. My name is Janelle White. I'm the director of the Temp Worker Union Alliance Project, which is housed in Warehouse Workers for Justice. So, you know, I'm going to ask a question about temp workers, <laughs> if that wasn't apparent. Um, I wanted to hear from, and if, if, if you have something to contribute, this is directed at everyone um, on the panel. Um, if you guys could speak to um, how you have seen temp workers being treated in your respective um, areas of work, if you have seen them, if that's like, um, something is being perpetuated, like permatemping, like people, Alfred was kind of alluding to that. That's what we call that when someone is stuck in a temporary position without an opportunity to advance to being a direct hire or having a permanent position. Um, I know, Betsy, you mentioned being a contract employee. While that is not a temp worker, it seems like there are some similarities with how contract employees and temp workers are treated. So I would just like to hear from everyone, um, you know, your, your insights and what you've observed or even your own personal experiences as it relates to basically doing the same work for less pay and little to no benefits. Um, we we do have uh, in our parts distribution warehouses with John Deere um, temp temp workers that that are in the same situation that same limbo of being um, semi employed um, kind of feeling like they're hanging on by a thread can be dismissed or terminated removed from the company um, at at their discretion which um, you know sidesteps union uh, organized labor and their um, protections, you know, um, even simple things like the wine garden rights um, are trampled on on a regular basis. And uh, it, it's something that is trending all over the country and all over different industries, as, as I can see it. Um, and and it's, it's exactly that. It's, it's a way to bypass organized labor. Um, unfortunately, it's manifested itself inside of organized labor in a lot of cases. And uh, yeah, it's the oldest trick in the book, right? It's divide and conquer. Um, it's it's doing just that. It's it's adding um, adding that divide of doing the same work and in whatever you know resentments um, 
stifleness, you know, that, that an employee may feel for feeling like they are doing more uh, as much, if not more than, you know, an employee next to them um, for a fraction of the pay and uh, almost maybe no benefits in some cases. But that's exactly what it is, unfortunately, I think it's divide and conquer. Yeah, we don't necessarily, we're not temp workers, but we are gig workers. So once the show or job or commercial is over, you don't have any guaranteed work. So every job that you finish, if you're able to finish it, uh, you basically back to square one. So that could be anywhere from like a single day commercial to a 10 month show, um, but, and anything in between. But we do have um, employees that are key to production that are not union members called production assistants who are treated very much like temp workers and they are paid the lowest, they are disrespected in ways that I will turn around and be like, no, that's another human being. You cannot speak to them that way. Like just, and they have the longest hours out of anyone because they have to be there first and they have to wait until the last people that leave. They have no protections from a union. They have no benefits. They seriously are just like, like I said, it's been romanticized. So we'll do whatever it takes to get in, to get to that position. And that, it, I mean, that goes to the health and safety issues on set as well for PAs because they are working these super long hours with maybe five hours in between when they get off work and have to be back to work. And that's, I mean, just them driving to and from work is dangerous. But beyond that, exhaustion goes in and it goes straight into mental health issues. And it's a very slippery slope that starts from the lowest position in our trade. And it's horrible because it's the same thing. They're getting specialized work without union employment. And the really lousy thing about it is that it's, it's uh, working as a PA and like recording your days as a PA is a pathway to uh, joining the director's guild. I think you need like at least 500 days or something like that. Um, but, you know, I can't think of another union that union within the entertainment industry that works like that. I mean, it's not like um, uh, getting into the IATSE is, I think it's pretty haphazard and we need to be a lot better at like, you know, having a coherent uh, apprenticeship program and that sort of thing. But it's, it's not, it's not this, uh, you know, poverty wage system with this like carrot dangle in front of you of eventually being like a, a second second or whatever um, within the director's guild. Um, you know, all of those, all of those people need a union like right now. And the fact that IATSE doesn't try to organize them or there's just like this negotiated, you know, peace over jurisdiction or whatever that, you know, IATSE doesn't want to mess with when these, you know, these production assistants who are very skilled and very dedicated just have to eat shit for years on end. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's one of the lousiest things about this industry. Say nothing of like caterers and security guards and all the other non-union positions uh, that, you know, work on our sets. Brenda, can I jump in and say something really quick? Um, I could be wrong, but my understanding as well is that the Directors Guild is sort of the, one of the least uh, kind of solidarity minded 
of of the unions in the entertainment sphere. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that culture of abuse on your way to being um, a full-fledged member, I think could contribute to that, right? Because you've put in your time, you've suffered the abuse, and now you're going to, you know, have, you know, be have some bitterness about it, right? And and kind of perpetuate the system because now it's your turn to be abusive towards others. Um, you see that cycle repeated in other kinds of environments and, you know, and so I just, uh, I wonder if that's the case. I would say 100%. Um, and the people who you hear be the worst to the production assistants are usually the assistant directors or the directors. So they came from that position, they had to do it. And instead of having compassion for the people who are now having to do it, instead, many of them are like, well, I, I did it, I put in my time, I did, now you have to, which is completely the wrong way for any human to think about interactions with other people. Because just because you went through something horrible or something traumatic, why would you want to put that on someone else? And like it being a cycle is so very true. Um, and another part that's, uh, a huge complication between the director's guild and being a part, being a union within this industry is that many of those people are also producers. Um, and therefore like they have a huge conflict of interest between their making money and their success and actually being good to the people that they are supposed to be in solidarity with. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for by Working People. Other attendees of the hearing had their own issues with health and safety in their workplace. One example being Clem Balanoff, National Political Director of the Amalgamated Transit Union, ATU. We've covered the health and safety problems facing transit workers often on previous episodes, so it was interesting to hear from Clem about a recent legislative victory for transit workers that could be leveraged to make significant improvements in their working conditions. I'm Clem Balanoff from the Amalgamated Transit Union. Every day across this country, transit workers are assaulted. You know, they're, they're spit on, they have urine thrown on them, they're punched. We've had a, a member that was had his throat slit from ear to ear a couple of years back. Um, they're, they're just, it's, it's a really bad situation oftentimes. And we've been fighting for legislation to be able to make, you know, like for shields on buses and for a variety of other improvements. Um, and I want to tell you about, I think what is, is for us is a success story. Because we've been fighting in the halls of Congress for years and couldn't get anybody, not only couldn't get the, the Republicans on board, we never get the Democrats on board, many of them. But in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, we got money for training because we're gonna be converting to electric buses and things like that. But much more importantly, we got legislation, um, it was in the bill that would said that in any jurisdiction over 200,000, that they will have to set up a safety committee made up of equal numbers of workers and management. Right now it's oftentimes three, four, five or six to one management and, and work and labor. Well, now they're gonna to have to have equal numbers of members on each committee. And they're supposed to come up with a safety mitigation plan. And that could include shields, it could include transit police, security on, um, on certain routes, um, an emergency button, 
rear entrance boarding or a variety of other things, but whatever plan they come up with, if they don't agree, the hammer for us is they lose federal transportation funding. This is a first. And I think it's something that everybody, certainly in the public sector, um, private sector too, I'd love to see it, but certainly in, in public sector should be really fighting for. Um, we're, we're pretty happy with it. It's just you know, certainly a few weeks old. We're working on now, what is that gonna look like in locals? How are we gonna train our, our, our members in, in the leadership in different locals? Um, you know, to be able to understand what, you know, they, they can figure out what their needs are, but also what they should be fighting for. So we just, so I just want to let everybody know, sometimes there's a success. And that's something I think people should really look, you know, for their own industry at trying to get. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. Terry Davis, longtime organizer, now retired with the UE and still a very active labor activist, talked about something we have not covered as much as we should here on Labor Express yet, the creation by the UE, DSA, and others of EWOC, the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. Terry explained what EWOC is and encouraged folks to get involved. I just thought I would uh, share something that I've been working on, which is the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee, which is uh, like we're volunteers who are helping people in dangerous workplaces or uh, unfair labor situations to organize. And we work with people in um, restaurants, warehouses, um, all kinds of all kinds of different uh, workplaces. And I just got finished uh, talking about the uh, labor shortage. Um, that labor shortage is recreated by intolerable working conditions. And an example is EMTs right here in Chicago, um, where they have to work 13 to 14 hour days, but then they have all kinds of tricks that, that are uh, played on them to make them have to stay for maybe 17 hours. But then one person who had worked way more than 17 hours had an accident with her ambulance and she was disciplined for that even though she had she was you know dead on her feet and um but i think that uh you know working with ewok anybody can sign up it's you know can sign up to be a volunteer organizer can sign up to get the help of a volunteer organizer and um, we've had some successes and we've done a lot of trainings and a lot of people that are itching to get in the labor movement. Um, but these one person strikes where people are like, I can't take it anymore and just leave, um, that, is, that is a problem for organizing because the turnover is just astronomical. People go in and out of these jobs. And um, so uh, the the idea is to get people to understand the uh, benefits of sticking around with your fellow workers and actually organizing. And uh, it can be done. So send people to EWOC, the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee, if they need help with that. At the conclusion of the hearing, Susan Hurley, Executive Director with Chicago Jobs with Justice, announced a new organizing effort of Chicago JWJ called CAUSE. C-A-W-S. It stands for Community Action for Worker Safety. They're looking for volunteers to help organize workers to build a citywide workplace safety committee. 
And a shout out to our organizer, Jill Manrique. Um, Jill is our organizer at Chicago Jobs with Justice, and she is working on a campaign called Cause, Community Action for Worker Safety. And many of you on this call are also engaged in that effort. Um, we have a website, chicagocause.org. Uh, maybe you want to slip that into the chat as well, Jill. Um, the idea here is that we are canvassing workers in the 25th Ward of Chicago, which is the Pilsen neighborhood, tiny little bit of uh, the West Loop in Chinatown. And we're canvassing workers to um, identify opportunities to support worker organizing um, in the much in the same spirit as what Brenda described, or excuse me, as Terry described with the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. And in fact, we are working with EWOC as a part of Chicago Cause. We're getting out there, we're talking to workers, we're providing them information um, about organizing inside and outside the workplace, um, uh, hopefully supporting workers, um, uh, creating workplace safety committees in their workplace. And one of the things that we also wanna do in conjunction with the campaign is create a citywide uh, worker safety committee uh, where independent uh, contractors um, and other kinds of gig workers can have a worker safety committee um, collectively since they don't have a shared workplace with their colleagues. Um, so uh, that's a lot of what we're working on. Yes, misclassified ones, you said it, Brandy. And I just wanna do a shout out for Brandy uh, Campbell who is uh, organizing uh, her comrades uh, who are in the uh, sex worker industry and in the stripper industry. Uh, and uh, so we've had a conversation with Brandy about the rampant misclassification of strippers in their industry as independent contractors and the extreme exploitation that they are and wage theft that they're experiencing. Um, and the need to organize. So thank you for being on, Brandy. Um, but yeah, that's the cause campaign. And we, uh, you know, invite everyone to, uh, if you're, a lot of you are already part of it, but uh, if you're not already, you can get in touch with Jill or I and we can get you in the fold. I need to apologize that for the sake of time, I was not able to include all participants and their testimonies in tonight's broadcast. We just didn't have enough time in tonight's broadcast. Thank you to Susan Hurley, Chicago Jobs with Justice, and the Workers' Rights Board for making tonight's audio available. There's a link up at laborexpress.org to Chicago Jobs with Justice's website if you're interested in getting more involved. That's all the time we have for tonight's program. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBEW Local 1220, whose expression on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. Yeah, this one's for the workers who turn out and day by hand and by brain to earn your pay. Passport.